You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. It's great to be together. If we've not met, my name is Craig, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad that you're here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us and uh, worshiping together with us this morning. Uh, Say, so we started a new series just last week. So if you're new here or maybe this is your, even your uh, first time with us, uh, we're, we're starting something. We're still in the early part, brand new. We're, we're calling it Grace in the Dark. Grace in the Dark. It's a study of the a ministry of Elijah and Elisha. We're calling it the gospel according to Elijah and Elisha. And here's the big idea, that no matter how dark the world gets, or no matter in this case how dark it gets among the people of God, and no matter how dark it gets in your own soul, God is present by his grace in Christ with his people. God is always present with his people And so we're going to be reminded every week until the middle of August, when this series is done, that God is with us in the dark, in the person of Jesus Christ. And today I want to talk about surprising sustainability. Sustainability, that's quite the buzzword these days, so I thought I had to work it somehow into a sermon title at some point. Surprising sustainability, and uh, and we're going to look at 1 Kings 17 in a moment. But just to catch you up on what we talked about last week. Uh, Last week, we started at creation and told the story all the way down to chapter 16 of 1 Kings. I won't review all that today other than to say this. At this time, when Elijah comes on the scene, Israel is in a very dark place. They're under King Ahab, who has not married within Israel but has found a bride uh, among the Sidonians, uh, a, a Baal worshiper named Jezebel, and he has married her, and together they are instituting among the people of God in Israel Baal worship. So Ahab has built a temple to Baal. He's built an, off, uh, an altar to Baal. He has built a, uh, an Asherah, uh, a pole, likely a pole for worship, which is uh, Asherah is the, uh, one of the three great goddesses of the Phoenicians. She is like the wife sort of uh, of Baal. Uh, and they are trusting in Baal. Baal is the god of rain and the god of fertility, they believe. And so Baal brings the rains, and as he does, the crops grow, and there's fertile crops. And then he also provides new life. He gives children to people who worship him. He gives offspring to their livestock so that they can be commercially fruitful and successful. So they're worshiping this false God uh, who does not exist, but uh, the people of God who know Yahweh, God's name, uh, the Lord, uh, the Hebrew for that is Yahweh, God, they worship Yahweh and they know him. Well, what happens is in chapter 17, last week we just read the first verse of chapter 17, uh, Elijah shows up. And he is this prophet of God. We know nothing about him. He's a mystery man. We don't get any pedigree. We don't get who his dad was. We don't know anything about him. He just simply shows up and announces that there will be no more rain 
uh, until he says, by God's authority, there will be rain. So let's read. We're going to break this chapter into three parts, and then at the end we're going to kind of summarize uh, really what it is all about. So let's uh, start reading verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy word to us. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land." So we're going to have three stories this morning from chapter 17. I'm just going to identify each according to kind of the lead character. The first, first story is about Elijah at a brook. The second story is going to be about a widow. The third story is going to be about a widow's son, the widow's son. So we start at the brook. And uh, the announcement that we read in verse 1, that there will be no dew nor rain except by my word. This is a clear challenge to Baal. He is, Elijah's starting a God war here. There's going to be a really dramatic God war coming up soon. But he's starting a God war where he's saying uh, the people of Yahweh uh, are trusting in a false God, Baal. And you think that he brings the rain. And so here's what's going to happen to demonstrate that God rules over all. He will shut the faucet off. There will be no rain uh, so that you will see who really is God. The, the nation experiences this drought, and, uh, and God calls Elijah to hide. Now, this is unusual. Verse 3, he says, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith. So hide yourself. Why does he tell him to hide? Well, uh, he was likely in danger. We'll see later in the story of Elijah that he certainly is in danger. But that's not the main reason that he hides. It's not because of danger, but it's because this is a season of God disciplining his people. With the drought will come a famine. There will be no food, but it's not just a famine of food. It's actually a famine of God's word as well. The people have ignored God. The people have ignored the word of the scripture and have done their own thing. So God will hide his voice from them that they may see their need. They, he's not only to withhold the rain here, but he's going to also withhold his word. Why is this? Because the drought is intended to cause Israel to see their need. He wants them to become disillusioned with the false god Baal, who has no power whatsoever. And so that through their suffering, they will see their need for the true God, and they will return to him. This is really a kindness of the Lord to them. 
We can seem like, it can seem like, wow, well, no rain, no food, no profit here. This seems rather harsh. But the harshest thing God could do, the most unloving thing he could do is abandon them to allow them to continue in their sin, to continue in their folly, to continue in this false worship, building their lives on something that is not true, to continue to compromise their witness, there to be a light to the nations. And the, the most unloving thing God could do would be to allow them to continue in the pathway of darkness. So tough love is, after all, true love. And that's what's happening here. And because they have ignored his voice, for a while, for a while, the prophet will go away. The word of God, in essence, will be in hiding to them. Now, today, we aren't dependent on a prophet. We have the recording of God's word for us here in the Bible. And so we can look at something like this and just, we can't even imagine the withdrawal of God's word. They were dependent on hearing God uh, through a prophet. We can't imagine the withdrawal of God's word. We've got uh, over, uh, an overflow of Bibles. We've got apps We've got apps that will read to you. We've got apps that will read to you a devotional plan so you don't have to do anything but press a button. It will tell you how much to read every day. Uh, we've got all kinds of Bibles. We've got, it's embarrassing how many niche Bibles we have. You can get a study Bible, whatever your demographic, whatever your interest, WWE wrestling study Bible. You can get anything. Junior high boys, study Bible. The demographics are very, very focused. I think Facebook's got an algorithm. Your Bible publisher has an algorithm, and it is so focused in what we can tailor. It's when consumerism meets the Word of God. There you have the American study Bible uh, in all of its various forms, though there are certainly some good study Bibles, no doubt. So we think with all the Bibles laying around and with a phone in my pocket, there would never be a drought of the Word of God. And yet we forget that we are dependent upon God to have a desire for His Word. We are dependent upon God to have an interest in His Word. We are dependent on God to illuminate his word by his spirit and bring conviction to our souls. We are dependent on the spirit of God to encourage us from the word of God, to reveal the savior to us, to grant us insight for how we are to live and walk out our callings faithfully before God. It's not as if God produced the Bible through humans. Now we've got the Bible. Now we're not dependent anymore. No, we're absolutely dependent. And the reality is there's some of us in this room that, that have so involved ourselves with various idols that we've lost interest in the word that it has been, in a sense, withdrawn from us. The passion that was there, the interest that was there, the insight was there. There was a time when you, were, you couldn't get enough of the scripture, and now you can't force yourself to sit down in the morning and read it. And there's a drought in your own soul. And it's not because God's playing hide and seek with you. It's because you have depended on other resources, substitute gods. We all do that at times. And so we too can know a sort of hiding of the word of God, at least in the sense of a heart and an interest and a desire for God. God hides the prophet 
but he cares for the prophet. Now, it, by the way, if that is us, if that is you, then the answer is to turn again, to confess that, to turn from idols, to turn from God, and to put yourself in front of him and his word uh, regularly until you do sense a God speaking to you afresh. God takes care of Elijah. So the people of God, Israel, he's allowing to go without water, but he takes care of Elijah. He feeds him twice a day, morning and evening, with bread and meat that is delivered by ravens. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. It shows us that all of creation is under God's control, that God will find a bird to bring him a meal. And it not only shows us that all of creation is under God's control, it shows us that God will use whatever means he chooses, surprising means, surprising sustainability. You see, the raven is an unclean bird. The raven is a scavenger. So what kind of meat did the raven bring to Elijah? One author says, what kind of meat do ravens bring? Don't ask. Simply cook it very well and eat up. A scavenging bird will feed the man of God, the the prophet of God. It's surprising that God would use unclean animals to sustain his prophet. Well, after a while, God does that because he's faithful. After a while, the, the brook dries up and God faithfully provides from another surprising source. It's surprising that ravens are bringing food. But he supplies another surprising source, and we read that in verses 8 through 16. When the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear Go and do as you have said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day of the Lord, until, I'm sorry, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Well, the first thing we notice here is that God tells Elijah to leave Israel. This is fascinating. He says, leave Israel. He sends him to Zarephath, and he sends him there. Verse 9 says, dwell there. Go to Zarephath and dwell there. He's telling him to leave the, 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 the land that was given to the people of God, the land of blessing, and to go to a new place. And where is this place? Well, it's a place that belongs to Sidon. 
Jezebel, the queen, her dad, Ethbaal, which means Baal is with him. Don't name your kid that. But Ethbaal, Baal is with him. He, he, that is the, uh, he is the king. He's in Sidon. And what happens is that, uh, that, that Elijah goes to the foreign land that is supposedly under the rule of Baal. He calls, God calls the prophet to go to Baal's home turf. And when he shows up there, we see, well, the, the drought, the withholding of the rain has affected Sidon as well, demonstrating that Yahweh is not some tribal God ruling over a limited area. He rules over all. And this sort of validation of his universal rule would have so encouraged the original readers. The original readers of kings are in exile. They are the people of Israel many years later who are in Babylonian exile. So they they are out of their homeland and they find out that uh, they're living under foreign, uh, they're living under Babylon, a foreign nation, foreign gods. And when they read this, they find out that it is really God who rules over all, for God has even stopped the rain in Sidon as well. There's grace in the dark. God has planned that Elijah will receive provision from a widow. Now, that's an unlikely source. In this culture, widows were limited. Widows were vulnerable, and especially this one. She's on her last meal. She's about to die of starvation. And so he asks her for water. He asks her for some bread. Uh, and she acknowledges, she responds, acknowledging that he is a believer in God. As Yahweh, your God, lives, I have nothing but bread, only a handful of flour. So she acknowledges that, that he is sent from God. She only has a little bit of flour. She only has a little bit of oil in her jug, and she's gathering these sticks to prepare a fire to bake her last meal. Baal has left her utterly empty, and Elijah tells her, make me a little cake and make something for yourself and your son, and then he makes an outrageous promise to her. He says in verse 14, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends a rain. the rain. He says, uh, in essence, give everything you have knowing that God will give everything you need. Give everything you have knowing that God will give you everything you need. Now, this is a miracle. There's a lot of miracles in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, a lot of miracles. But this is an interesting one because she doesn't instantly receive multiple jars of flour. He doesn't say, hey, go go look uh, in your kitchen. It, It will be filled with flour. You won't be able to count the jugs of oil that uh, are in your backyard. He doesn't do that. He simply says, your provision will never run dry. He says, the jar will not be spent. The jug will not be empty. And this is so how often how God provides. We want an abundance of proof. We want lots of cushion, lots of security, lots of margin demonstrating, oh man, I'm set 
Now I'm set for a long time. God has come through, and yet Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's all arranged. Discipleship is all arranged around the idea of daily dependence. Not getting to a place where you no longer need God, but to get to a place where you are realizing daily your dependence on God and asking him to provide all that you need. And so verse 15 says, she went and did as Elijah said. Verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty. Israel should have been responding like this pagan woman. This woman of Zarephath, she's not, not portrayed here as a believer at this point initially in God. For she, she doesn't say uh, the Lord our God. She says the Lord your God in verse 12. She's clearly a, a Sidonian. She's uh, in a land where people have all chosen to worship Baal. And, and yet she responds like, his, like, like the people of Israel should be. Responding, she hears the promise of God and she obeys. The promise of God is costly. Give up a portion of your last meal. As a matter of fact, feed Elijah before you and your son eat. This is, this is a promise. It seems, seems almost foolish to do something like this. But do what the Lord says and see what happens. And she hears the promise of God. She obeys the promise of God and God comes through so that she never runs out of food. I remember seeing a TV preacher. I I don't watch TV preachers often, but this one stuck out in mind. I remember watching a TV preacher teach this story one time, and his big takeaway point was that if you'll take care of the man of God, God will take care of you. And guess who the man of God was? In that, in that account, well, it was the guy asking for the money. Take care of the man of God. Send in your offering, and God will take care of you. That, that is clearly an abuse of the text. But I do think we could say this about the text, that the text reveals to us God is trustworthy, that God makes promises, that God is gracious And shows up in the dark when we have nothing providing for us. That God is gracious. And God calls us to trust him by faith and be generous. Even sacrificial. I think that is a fair application. Because of the generosity of God, we must steward his resources. Trusting him. Living generous lives, always believing that God will care for his people. Well, God is caring for Elijah, and he continues to do so in the most unconventional ways. I love how Dale Ralph Davis says of these first two stories. He says, is this not vintage Yahweh? Who else would ever design to use the unclean ravens and the unlikely a widow, as sustainers of his servant. Who am I to object if Yahweh delights to use dirty birds and hopeless women? We should, however, adore the scintillating creativity of a God who brings help to his people through channels they would never expect. That's how God works. 
think about Jesus, no one saw that coming, that the Messiah would be crucified. A crucified Messiah is an oxymoron. How can you be the king to deliver God's people from their oppressors when you die? How can that happen? They did not see this kind of Messiah coming, and yet he did not remain dead. He rose from the dead to defeat the great oppressor because our great oppressor is sin. It is death. It is Satan and all of his uh, minions. It is darkness. It is evil. This is the great oppressor, and Jesus rises from the dead to defeat the enemy and will one day return to establish a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no, no oppression, no sin, no death, no suffering ever again. No one saw the coming that he would come to in his first coming free us from our sins and his second coming to establish for all eternity a new heaven and a new earth. This is how God works. He works in surprising ways. He works through surprising means. He provides in surprising ways. We don't prescribe to God what kind of help he should bring for the forgiveness of our sins or for our daily bread. We simply trust his word and look to him to be faithful to us. Well, the final section is the most powerful of all. We've had Elijah at the brook. We've had the, the unending flour and oil for the widow. And the last section is about her son. Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times. And cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The first part of the story is kind of hard because it's, it's hard to process. I read it all through, so we got the ending really fast. But it's hard to process the idea that after this miraculous provision from the Lord, uh, flour that never ends, oil that never runs dry, food in the midst of famine, daily provided by God miraculously. It's hard to imagine that God would do all of that and then, uh, then allow this boy to die or kill him, is what she says. You've, Elijah says, would, actually, Elijah says that, doesn't he? Or why are you, Lord, would you be killing her son? She immediately assumes it's because of some sin in her life. Verse 18, that's what she says, uh, um, uh, you have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. That's not the reason her son died. Um, 
It's not because of some particular thing that she did or didn't do. His death's not a result of her sin. But we can all relate to that. There are times when we say, Lord, is this happening because of that thing I did? Is this here because of that? But that is not what's going on. And that's usually, there are times when individual sins lead to individual circumstances and situations. At times that happens. But more often than not, it's unexplained when, when catastrophe comes into our lives. It's, it's often there's not a clear one-to-one explanation like that. We live in a fallen world, and suffering occurs in a fallen world. The reason the son dies is ultimately so that we will see the glory of God, the power of God, so that we will see in the Yahweh Baal battle, we will see that God is the one who gives life. God is the one with the power to redeem and to restore. God is the one who is the God of the crops and the God of fertility. He is the God of all of life. God is the one who sustains his people, and in this case, God is gracious and merciful even to Gentiles to sustain them as they have trusted the word of God. This is an opportunity for God to show his power over death. Well, Elijah takes the dead boy and he takes him upstairs and he prays. His first prayer, he's crying out, uh, embracing the grief of the widow. This is a powerful, this is not the the purpose of the passage, but one insight is that he does pray a powerful prayer of intercession. Intercession is bearing the burdens of someone else and taking them to the Lord in prayer. And you can see, oh Lord, verse 20, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I'm sojourned by killing her son? You can feel he's entering into her pain. He's carrying her suffering. He is related to her sorrows. Uh, He's not coming in and saying, lady, where's your faith? You've had food for weeks back here. What are you complaining about? He doesn't rebuke her or chastise her. He goes to the Lord and says, Lord, why'd you kill her son? He is is carrying her burden. And and, and the passage says that that the Lord uh, hears him. Verse 22, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. That Elijah cries out and the Lord hears and graciously responds uh, to, to his prayer. He, he stretches out upon the boy, and then his second prayer is uh, to give him life. So after entering into her grief and voicing her pain, he stretched himself out, verse 21, and he says, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And he actually lays on top of him. There's, there's no magic going on here. This isn't some formula. Uh, it's like laying hands on someone. It's just a symbolic uh, gesture of some sort, maybe having to do with Elijah who is filled with the life and life of God. May, may that somehow be transferred to the boy. We don't know exactly what it symbolizes. He doesn't tell, but it's probably something like laying on of hands. And he, he, the boy is restored and he lives. And this powerful word, he delivers, her, delivers him back to the, the widow and says, verse 23, see your son lives. The power of life is with God. And she recognizes that, verse 24. Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. That's the climax of the whole story. I know the word of God is true. I know the word of God is true. God is trustworthy. 
Ultimately, the whole passage has to deal with the Word of God. One, one way you can get at a theme of a passage, one would be repetition of words. If a word's repeated a lot, it probably means that's what the passage is about. Another way that we can look is how does a section of Bible, a narrative story, how does it open and how does it close? Well, these three stories are tied together and they open and close with a statement about the Word of God. Look at 17.1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these days except by my word. It is by the word of the prophet, God's word to him, God's word to his people, is by the word of God. Uh, that rain will come. And then it closes with the resuscitated boy or the boy with new life, not resuscitated, he was dead. The resurrected boy, I guess. Uh, Now I know that you are the man of God, that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. So there'll be no rain until God speaks it because God rules over all and controls the rain. And God can act and raise someone to life. And on both ends of of these three stories is the word of God. So the whole section is about Yahweh over Baal. It's pointing out that God controls everything and that he is faithful to his people and his word can be trusted. I mean, if we took the chapter in a sentence, I think this would be the big idea, that because our God is the one true God, we can always trust his word. Because our God is Yahweh and not Baal, a false god. Because our God is the one true God, we can always trust his word, which is proved trustworthy throughout this chapter. That's what God wants us to know about himself, that he rules over all and that we can trust his word, something that Israel has not done. They've lost sight of his rule. They've not trusted his word and something this woman, this widow has done, Elijah has done. It calls us, the section calls us to believe that God rules Each incident here addresses an area of human life that that they thought, oh, Baal has control of that. And the truth is, no, God has control of that. He, He provides food for Elijah at the brook in the most unconventional manner, provides water through the brook until it dries up. And then he provides a new supply through a widow, an unconventional provision given the day and the culture. He provides an endless supply of food for this widow and her son and for Elijah, just as God promised by his word. God restores life to a boy that has died, causing the widow to proclaim the word of God is true. That's the revelation that she had that Israel doesn't have at this season in their lives. The rain, the crops, the life itself is is under control of God and not Baal. And so the message is why trust in idols. They are lifeless and useless. God can intervene. God does intervene. God rules over all. And God will provide however God wants to provide in the most unconventional means imaginable because God has everything at his disposal and always acts for the good of his people. Now, Baal is not the big opponent in our day. As a matter of fact, I've never met someone that told me, uh, I'm not interested in Jesus, I worship Baal. It's not a box. When you check what is your religion, uh, Baal's not on the list. He's not a big threat in our culture, but yet we have many opponents of God, many God substitutes as well. And this passage wants to show us that, that all the substitutes are lifeless and will not deliver. God alone delivers 
and especially in desperate times, and he will do so miraculously. So what has taken God's place in your life? Maybe not Baal, but what has taken God's place in your life? What challenges the lordship of Jesus in your life? On Easter Sunday, we talked about the idea of security and that ultimate security is found in God. One way that we can know where our trust lies is to ask this question. What would make me feel totally secure, totally safe in life? Maybe it would be money. Money for the future. You would say, well, if I just didn't, if I knew I could pay all my bills and I could do that for the future, then I would feel secure. Maybe it's a relationship. I would feel secure if I had a spouse. I'd feel secure if my spouse changed and were different. I'd feel secure if I had a different kind of job, something that provided in a different way. I'd feel secure if there, was, uh, if there was hope, I could put some kind of hope in government. I'd feel secure if my party remains in power or my party takes power, whatever the case may be. Then I would feel secure. I would feel secure if there was, uh, if there was no war going on right now and no talk of nuclear threat. Then I would really feel secure Or maybe this way, I would be content if, you know, I would be content if, I'd just be happy. All I need is this to be happy. I just need my parents to recognize me and affirm me. I just need my spouse to respect me or love me more or the way I want to be loved. I would be content if I could just buy a house in Frisco, the American dream, which has evaporated. Now, we all laugh because it's to keep from crying, actually. <laughs> we all laugh, but, but man, there are many who would say, I, I was saving up. I was getting there. We think we're going to be able to get a house, and we just poof, watched it run out of sight and the interest rates with it. If I just had a house, I'd be okay then. I'd have some security. I wouldn't have to move So often, you see how this works. I would just be content if this trial would disappear. I'm not asking for a changed life. I'm not asking for everything to change. But if this situation would change, I'd be okay. And the passage tells us you'll be okay when you recognize God is Lord over all your life. That's when you'll be okay. That's the safe spot. That's the secure zone. I'll be content if... If I just had this certain joy, this certain pleasure. Here's the the script that runs in the back of many of our minds. I just want to get to the place where I've got everything under control. That's Baalism. That's rank idolatry. Because you are not created to control. You are created to trust the one who's in control. God will see to it, you never get to the place where I've got it all together. All my ducks are in a row. Everything is smooth. There's not a chaotic moment. It's, I've spent years of utter peace and perfection. That's eternity, friends. That's the new heaven and the new earth. It won't happen in this life. And so 
How, how long are we going to keep getting surprised when something challenging comes along? God has orchestrated things so that we will always look to him and believe he rules over all. And he will create circumstances where we find ourselves on our knees acknowledging that reality. Where we're saying, Lord, we need some flour and some oil. Oh, Lord, bring life into this boy, whatever it is. Lord, the brook is run dry. What do I do now? Leave Israel. Go to the land of the Sidonians. Go to Baal's home turf and find an unbelieving widow and I'll take care of you. What? It makes no sense, but this is the way of God. So the, the chapter calls us to believe God rules. And secondly, and, and we got to get this from verses 1 and 24, it calls us to trust his word. His word is central to the passage. Verse 1, verse 24. And here's the reality of this passage. One author said, we may know more theology than this widow. Everyone in this room, if you know anything about Jesus, you know more than this woman. We may know more theology than this widow, but at the end of the day, we find that faith consists in leaning all our weight upon the mere word of God. I don't care how much you know. It's not how much you know. It's do you trust in the God of the Bible that you know? We never get past trusting the mere word of God, the bare, naked word of God. We never get past this. The Lord calls us to believe his word is true. We, we, there's, not, there's not some new thing. There's not some new technology, some new app, some new conference, some new church. There's not some new deal. That's going to solve it all. There is the word of God from eternity past, from eternity future, which is true and is always reliable and is always trustworthy. I don't care how many people have a new discovery or how many people deconstruct their faith. The word of God remains true. And you don't ultimately evaluate it. It evaluates you. Trusting God's word. It's the simple fact. We read this. This is so primitive, we think. So simple. So basic. Yes. Yes, it is. It's believe the word of God. God is good to his people. God is faithful to us all. You know, it's easy to believe the word of God when Elijah said, God will always see to it that you have flour and oil. And she uses it all to bake up these cakes and wakes up the next morning and there's plenty for pancakes that day. It's easy to believe God then, but it's challenging to believe God when he says, you've only got this much, give Elijah some of it, feed him so that you and your son have even less to eat on your last meal before you die. The word of God says, and so she responds, and that's what we are called to do. We never graduate from trusting his word. So where is God calling you to trust him today? What is that situation that I would feel secure if I had this? That, what is that place where you're looking for contentment? What is the place? What is the deep point of need? And then, I can't list a scripture for all those, but what does the scripture say about that? What does the scripture say? If you're new to the Bible, find someone in the room, someone in your community group, or someone 
uh, it, it, you know, in, in the uh, starting point class with you or whatever, find someone who can help you. We'd, be, we'd love to help you find where does the scripture address that reality of what I'm going through? And what is the Lord calling me to trust him? How does his word, how can I trust? She says, I know that you're a man of God because the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. What is the word of the Lord about this situation and how do I get it in my heart, my mind, and my mouth? That is what we're called to do. What what is God calling you to believe? What's he calling you to do by faith today? What is he calling you to stop doing and give up? What is he calling you to say today? Where is he calling you to go by faith? With whom is he calling you to speak today? What is he calling you to give today? What is God calling you to in your marriage to do different? How is he calling you to trust him in your marriage? Trust him with your children. Trust him with your parents. How is God calling you to trust him in your job specifically? And how does the scripture address that? How's the God, how's God calling you to trust him in your health? And do you have a community around you who will remind you what God's word says to you in those areas? That's why we're in community group and in uh, various other contexts as well, where we are together because I, I know some scriptures. I know something about the word of God, but man, I forget. And I need someone around me praying for me and reminding me and sharing with me and encouraging me and challenging me. I need that. So we need one another in this way. Well, how do I know that God will do for me what he did for them? Well, God, he may not do exactly what he did in this story for you, but he will do whatever whatever you need according to his will, he will do. And how do you know that? Because he fed a widow and her son because a kid came back to life? Well, yes. But we know it from a greater revelation of uh, of the Bible, and that's the revelation of Jesus. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God says to you today, believer, that you know he will provide all you need. Because Because he fed Elijah with ravens, yes. Because the flour didn't run out, nor did the oil, yes. Because the widow's son came back to life, yes. But there's a greater yes. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sin, was buried, came up out of the grave, defeating the power of sin and death, and rules and reigns on a throne today, Lord over all. And God, the Father says, the Bible says, if he didn't spare Jesus, if he met your greatest need, your greatest need is how can you be right with God? And he met your greatest need through Jesus bearing your sin and dying as your substitute in your place. If he met your greatest need, will he not take care of everything else? That's the promise of God. It's the gospel. We know that God is ruler over all, and we must believe the gospel, that if Jesus was provided for us, if God did not spare his own son to die in our place, will he not take care of the rent? Will he not take care of your health? Will he not take care of your son? Will he not take care of your mother? Will he not take care of your job? And the list goes on and on and on with what burdens you today. He's Lord over all of it. And he's proved it by the empty tomb and the ascended Savior who sits at his right hand today. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.